Now can you guys hear me? Oh yeah, I can hear myself. <laughs> I guess I don't need to be that close. Well, hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited that you guys are here today. Today we're gonna talk a little bit about um, health equity and how it relates to language access. Um, my name is Joe Mandelson. I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist. I am at the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. Um, I'm also a branch chief on the Nutrition and Education Innovation Division. Oh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> but you might know us as the MyPlate team. Um, I'm also today's mo moderator, it is, and it is my honor and privilege to introduce this wonderful group of women. So, Ires Janet Rosa de Clet holds the position of program specialist in the Caribbean Office for the Mid-Atlantic Region Food and Nutrition Service, USDA. As a registered dietitian nutritionist for the past 25 years, Edis has specialized in child nutrition program operations and has extensive experience identifying opportunities to remove participation barriers and collaborate with key organizations to further expand programs to eligible population and entities. Julia Kwam is a registered dietitian and nutritionist with USDA's Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. She supported the development of the 2020-2025 edition of the Dietary Guidelines and corresponding educational materials as an ORISE Health Policy Fellow at HHS Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. In her current role, Julia supports continued implementation of the 2020-2025 Dietary Guidelines while also supporting the 2025 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee and the development of the next edition. Julia has a long-standing interest in nutrition education, and prior to federal service, she worked with several nonprofit organizations to develop, implement, and evaluate nutrition education programs and materials. Megan Adler is a registered dietitian nutritionist with USDA. After working with USDA ARS on the National Health in Nutrition Examination Survey for over a decade, she joined the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion at USDA FNS and supported the development of the 2020 Dietary Guidelines. She's currently working to support the development of the next edition. She's passionate about the implementation of the Dietary Guidelines and enjoys working on the development, translation, and dissemination of DGA tools and resources professionals can adapt for diverse communities and improving those efforts by learning from and collaborating with stakeholders. Aracelis Lopez is a registered dietitian nutritionist. She completed her master's degree of health science and nutrition at the University of Puerto Rico. Currently, she works as a team leader at the USDA Food and Nutrition Service in the Caribbean Area Office and provides support to the Mid-Atlantic Regional Team and oversight of the Federal Nutrition Assistance Programs Administration. During the past 20 years, Aracelis has extensive experience in building partnerships and coalitions with state agencies and nonprofit organizations in Puerto Rico. All right, so we have a packed agenda today. Uh, we'll be providing some background on equity through language access. We'll talk a little bit about customizing the dietary guidelines for American and developing recursos en español, as well as our lessons learned. And lastly, we'll share some resources. By the end of this session, you'll be able to learn how multilingual resources can support a community, access opportunities for more equitable translations, select translation strategies appropriate for your needs, and you'll be able to identify some samples of Spanish resources that are available and based on the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And with that, I'll pass the presentation over to Edis. Thank you. Thank you, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Edis Janet. This is my first time here in SNAP, and I'm enjoying it a lot. And thank you for coming to this very late um, conference of today. <laughs> okay. So in this section, we present the fundamental principles to address equity for consumers and multilingual professionals through language access. In September 2022, the, the White House released a national strategy on hunger, nutrition, and health with the specific actions the federal government will take. The Biden-Harris administration is aware consumers often hear conflicting food messages, and U.S. adults 
regularly overrate the quality of their diets. It is well known that there is more work to be done to empower consumers to make healthy food choices. And the White House want to do so by um, supporting regular updates to the dietary guidelines as well as to leading a national education campaign to boost awareness on healthy eating recommendations and to support all Americans in making healthy choices. This um, will be an investment of public funds to help and present cultural appropriate efforts and um, I'm sorry, I'm nervous. <laughs> and to be uh, cultural and grounded in cultural understanding. The number of people that spoke a language other than English in USA homes has tripled over the course of five decades according to the U.S. Census Bureau of 2019. And we know this is old data, but we think that the number is even larger. If you see in figure number one, the growing trend shows that the number should be greater than that. It is estimated that one in five Americans speak a language other than English at home as their primary language. Uh, which is the language they use when they have their meals. And this is an important fact to remember because the preferred language of individuals may determine the use of English material that is available to them. The Hispanic population is the largest minority group in U.S. and the most common non-English language spoken in U.S. homes in 2019. Language barriers and the inability to read and understand uh, health information may limit advancing um, the health and nutrition security to individuals with limited English proficiency. Health literacy is the focus of Healthy People 2030, which seeks to improve health communication so people can easily find read, understand, and act on health information. There are proven strategies to improve health literacy, which include developing and testing written materials with the audience, organizations, and professionals want to reach, and practicing a universal health literacy approach. We all must make sure that the information, the products, the services that are available to the public are accessible and easily understandable to the intended audience. Among the resources to advance health literacy, we find the federal plain language guidelines. The law requires federal agencies to use plain language, which means to use a clear, organized, appropriate government communication that people can use and understand in plain language, the use of words, the choice of words matters. It is preferred to use simple and familiar words that the consumers can understand easily and can act on that information. And the use of plain language can reduce in translation errors and that the consumer receive the intended message. The Health Literacy Online Guide provides an overview of how to deliver health information through the website that be actionable and engaging and tools to evaluate and improve the health website with a user-centered um, design. This is a research-based guide that provides tools to develop uh, intuitive websites and digital tools that the consumers can use and navigate the web without major problem and can use and understand the information quickly. The national class standards 
provides a blueprint of 15 action steps for individuals and healthcare organizations to implement culturally and linguistically appropriate services. These are a set of four main standards that include uh, communication and language assistance as one of the standards. And the recommendation is to conduct language assessments and to offer language assistance and to communicate with individuals in their preferred language. The USDA Equity Commission recently provided a set of 32 recommendations for embedding equity into USDA programs and services. It recognized language as a barrier to access USDA program and services. It has identified language access in recommendation number 12 to ensure equitable language and culturally competent access to USDA services. This will be achieved through a designated executive level staff member responsible for language access guidance, compliance, and oversight, and also through investment of long-term financial partnerships to build language access capacity that endure over the time and benefit all. The ability to speak multiple languages has become increasingly important in the healthcare and nutrition industry to advance equity. Organizations must regularly assess for language needs of the population in their community of service to accurately, accurately plan for and implement services that respond to the, to the cultural and linguistic characteristics of the communities. Multilingual professionals are key to testing translated messages and materials and to conduct subsequent cultural adaptations, all of which organizations must be aware of the effort these activities may take and the impact of them among their staff. So now I will transition to Julia. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Iris, for setting the stage for us about why language access is so important for all our efforts related to health and nutrition. Um, so before we go into detail about how we're attempting to apply some of these concepts for dietary guidelines implementation, I just wanted to kind of set the stage with some background about the dietary guidelines for Americans and how its recommendations can be customized for different groups. So the dietary guidelines is an important part of a complex and multifaceted approach to promoting health and reducing chronic disease in the US. It provides science-based advice about what to eat and drink to prevent chronic disease and promote health. And it informs our federal nutrition policies and programs. So for example, the National School Lunch Program and the Older Americans Act Nutrition Programs use the dietary guidelines in menu planning, the WIC program uses it um, in all of their programs and educational materials, and Healthy People, which Iris mentioned, and that program sets national objectives to improve health and well-being um, for the whole nation, um, includes objectives based on the dietary guidelines as well. And it's important to note that the dietary guidelines is written for a professional audience. So that includes policymakers, healthcare professionals, nutrition educators, and federal nutrition program operators. Um, and many of these individuals, they work with the general public to help them consume a healthy and nutritionally adequate diet. So these professionals are an important audience for our um, supporting resources for the dietary guidelines as well. And again, as Iris mentioned, Americans come from a variety of cultural and linguistic backgrounds, so it's really essential that the dietary guidelines and its supporting materials are adaptable. So the current edition of the dietary guidelines is the 2020 to 2025 edition, and this 
um, slide here shows our four overarching guidelines. So follow a healthy dietary pattern at every life stage, customize and enjoy nutrient-dense food and beverage choices to reflect personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary considerations, focus on meeting food group needs with nutrient-dense foods and beverages and stay within calorie limits, and limit foods and beverages higher in added sugars, saturated fat, and sodium, and limit alcoholic beverages. So each guideline has um, supporting key recommendations that really go into more detail about how they can be met, but today we just wanted to give you a quick snapshot and you can learn more and download the full um, document at dietaryguidelines.gov. But we did just wanna kind of focus in on guideline two because it's especially relevant to today's presentation. So this guideline is to customize and enjoy nutrient-dense food and beverage choices to reflect per personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary considerations. And the intent of the dietary guidelines has really always been to be inclusive and relevant to different cultures, but this wasn't necessarily emphasized in previous editions. So in the 2020 to 2025 edition, we really wanted to be extremely clear about celebrating the rich diversity of people who the dietary guidelines is meant to serve and the range of foods they consume. So th really that's why this concept was prioritized in the second guideline here and also in the content throughout the document. So one way we did this was by including um, images of a wide range of people and different types of foods from different cultures that tried to be really inclusive across the rich diversity in our country. So for example, we included um, images of people with representation from a variety of ages, life stages, race, ethnicity, body size, and ability. And we hope um, if you look through the Dietary Guidelines document that you'll be able to see that. And in addition to the images and examples that we chose throughout the document, we um, also really want the second overarching guideline to reflect the key message that the Dietary Guidelines is a framework that's meant to be customized to individual, household, and federal program participants' preferences, as well as the foodways of the diverse cultures within our country. So rather than recommending specific foods or beverages, um, the Dietary Guidelines really meant, is meant to provide recommendations by food groups and subgroups and avoid being overly prescriptive. And this approach really lets people make it their own and select foods, beverages, and meals that meet their needs and preferences rather than following some kind of pre-specified meal plan. And we really believe that in all settings across all cultures, ages, and budgets that there are foods and beverages that can fit within this framework. And this is a theme that we're gonna really continue to promote throughout implementation of this edition of the guidelines. So to illustrate the dietary guidelines framework, the 2020 to 2025 edition includes figures like the one that's shown here on this slide. And this figure shows the range of options within each food group and nutrient dense forms that can fit within the dietary guidelines framework. And it's a really useful resource to use with consumers to help them understand how their taste preferences, budgets, and cultural considerations can be accommodated within the dietary guidelines framework. And addition, in addition to being within the dietary guidelines itself, this is available as a standalone resource on our dietaryguidelines.gov website and can be used as a conversation starter to help folks understand how the framework can apply to their situation. So like I mentioned up front, the audience for the Dietary Guidelines is professionals, and our website um, really tries to provide tools for professionals that they can use to implement the Dietary Guidelines throughout their work. So this includes print materials that are designed for professionals to use with consumers to communicate clearly about the recommendations in the guidelines, as well as web resources like food source lists, 
presentation slides, figures, and infographics, all that can be adapted for professionals' needs. So looking a little bit more at our dietaryguidelines.gov website, um, this has a pretty expansive reach. We have users um, both nationally and interna internationally in over 240 countries, as well as all 50 states and the District of Columbia. And again, we know the need for um, resources and languages other than English is great, even here within the US. Um, again, one in five people speak a language other than English and Spanish is the most common language with one in seven individuals within the US speaking Spanish in the home, and that's 42 million people. And of course, we also have users who access the dietary guidelines from Puerto Rico, like our wonderful co-presenters here today, um, where the population almost exclusively speaks Spanish at home. And we think that the, some of that need for Spanish language resources is um, reflected in our utilization record, um, utilization numbers for our materials, um, but probably likely there is an even greater need. So here, um, looking at the handouts um, within our website that are available in both English and Spanish, you can see that about one in five are accessed um, in Spanish when looking at all of our handouts and 5% of our figures are accessed in Spanish. But again, there's probably even greater need um, as we get out the word more about the availability of these resources. So this slide here shows the total downloads of our Spanish language resources over time. And it starts um, in 2022, so in March of 2022, we actually launched a dedicated resources page for our Spanish materials that Megan will talk about in a little bit more detail, and we had about 5,000 downloads of those Spanish materials in the first month. Um, and then you can see um, the kind of trends there throughout the year. So recently, we developed the capacity to do a little bit more promotion of our dietary guidelines resources in general. And um, we think that some of those promotions have helped drive download of our Spanish resources. Um, and all of our promotions, we really try to emphasize the availability of both our English and Spanish resources and include visuals of our Spanish resources to really help um, keep the focus on them. And we did this doing, during our National Nutrition Month and our National Minority Health Month promotions. You can see that there was um, a bump in downloads during those months. And we also saw last year a small bump during Hispanic Heritage Month without actually doing a formal promotion. So we're, um, we're pleased to see that and always looking for opportunities to do more promotion of those Spanish resources, um, potentially doing something again for Hispanic Heritage Month this year and kind of getting the word out more. So before um, passing this along to Megan, I just wanted to emphasize the importance of getting nutrition educators to use and adapt our resources um, and how this is really necessary for a successful implementation of the dietary guidelines. So we work at the federal level, but you all work at the community level and know your audiences best. So we really want you to feel empowered to take resources that are available on dietaryguidelines.gov and adapt them to the needs of your audiences. So we know we can't design materials that are sort of relevant to every single specific um, situation of all the communities that make up the United States. So our goal is really to provide some tools and resources that can be useful for you as a starting place and then encourage you all to adapt them. So with that, we'll transition over to Megan, and she will talk a little bit more about the process we used to build out our Spanish resources. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks for setting that stage. That was fantastic. Um, 
Welcome everyone. So nice to see you all today in this late session. Um, I'm, my uh, job with my section is to really focus on the development of those Spanish resources. So um, from the process that we implemented to the partnerships that we created um, and the insights and some of the challenges we face. So hopefully you, you can learn from some of that and maybe you can teach us some things too. So feel free to share those. Um, as Julia showed, dietaryguidelines.gov has um, dozens of Spanish language resources available for professionals throughout the site. Um, you can access them through that QR code there if you'd like to follow along um, during the presentation, but no need if, if you don't want to. Again, they were released in March of 2022. So the guidelines themselves were released in 2020, December of 2020, so technically 2021, but um, very end of December. Um, so when we first launched, we had a few resources. We had like the executive summary in Spanish, but we did not have this full library of resources that we do now. And so um, before I move on to what we did for a needs assessment to determine what we were gonna do, I'd love to just see a show of hands. Did you get the message when we launched in 2022 from our listserv that these materials were available? If you did raise your hand, just kind of want to see like, who, like, did the word get out? Did we do a good job? No, we didn't. We didn't do a good job. Okay, we need you on our listserv. That's at the end. Um, have you been to the site since, though? Did you know about the resources? Okay, a few more hands. That's great. And have you downloaded any? Anyone downloaded any? Great, a few hands. All right, so hopefully we'll bump up those numbers even more. Um, so the development of these resources began in 2021, for most of 2021, we like to describe 2021 as our virtual roadshow. We were literally presenting three to five times per week or more on the dietary guidelines. Um, that part of you know COVID and being virtual gave us the ability to do that. Small silver lining. Um, but on the federal side, we were able to meet with dozens of teams, both in different agencies and also within our own agency, and have separate meetings with each of these groups. Um, and we conducted informal polling. We were also able to do f more facilitated discussions to really understand what types of resources professionals wanted and needed, and in which languages. Um, and so. I think based on the numbers from census and stuff, you would imagine that it would be Spanish, and it was overwhelmingly Spanish, but there were a ton of other languages that people wanted resources in as well. Um, so um, externally, we were able to meet with state agencies and extension offices, universities, and professional organizations, um, also doing kind of um, some polling to find out what people wanted. Um, those presentations also internally really facilitated staff introductions and open opportunities for collaboration, um, which was how our partnership was formed. I told my husband about this last night and he was like, you're USDA collaborating with USDA. Like that seems like a no brainer, but there are a lot of people at USDA. There are a lot of groups. It's hard to collaborate sometimes. And I think now virtually, you know, it's even getting even better. So I really value this partnership and it's been really fantastic. Um, so that's what I responded back to him. <laughs> um, now, we recognize that a budget and timing to do a year-long needs assessment is not always like doable for people, so we do realize that. Um, but if you do have the time to do a needs assessment, we really wanna just, just stress the importance. I know people here, you don't have to tell them about doing a needs assessment, everyone pretty much is doing them. Um, in our experience though, what we thought professionals wanted was not what we found that they were asking for. So um, we really gained valuable insights from, from this work. Um, so, just want to talk about that partnership again. Highly recommend it. it. This partnership was integral to the translation of these materials and development of this, these materials. And this co collaboration really continues to be a really fruitful one that you know we've learned so much and been able to support each other's work, and it's been fantastic. Um, this morning, if you went to the plenary session, they talked about um, partnerships like these really highlighting the importance of collective intelligence which I, and iterative learning, which I thought Douglas spoke to really well. That was so cool, that the framework. Um, 
And this partnership really began after we did one of those facilitated discussions. Um, Iris and uh, Aracelis really had fantastic feedback for our team and then followed up afterwards with an invitation to present at the Colegio of Nutritionistas and Dietistas in Puerto Rico. And we were able um, to, or, or that organization, if you don't know, is an organization in Puerto Rico that provides continuing education credits or opportunities, I should say, for dietitians to maintain their credentialing. And so we were really grateful for that introduction. It was fantastic. We learned so much from, from that group. Um, and they asked us to present, even though at the time the DGA team didn't have anyone on staff who was fluent enough in Spanish to feel confident presenting to that group. So we said, you know, we can work with our other FNS uh, programs and get someone who's, who really knows the DGAs and, and can present in Spanish, and we'll be there for the question and answer, work with a translator. And they were like, no, 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 we want the DGA subject matter experts to present in English what if you translated your slides for us and had slides in English and Spanish? And so this is something we would have never thought of before, but the Colegio had success with it in the past, and they asked us to do that. And then we did work with a translator for the Q&A. Um, and um, it was a great learning opportunity. It was fantastic, um, very well received, um, and thankfully it was recorded because many of the dietitians that day were without power and unable to join that live presentation because of the ongoing impacts of storms in, in Puerto Rico. Um, okay. So this is an example of a polling question we used for this presentation in particular that I was just speaking to. Um, so prior to this, we would provide like an in-depth um, uh, overview of all of the materials that we had already had in English, explaining what they were, and then we'd use a polling question like this to kind of find out, like, if we translated one of these or a few of these into Spanish, which ones of these would be most important to you? Or maybe they're not on this list, like, you know, let us know what else we could have developed that would be most relevant. Um, and so uh, this included the customizing the dietary guidelines framework that Julia um, showed, our food sources of select nutrient lists, all of the figures, our infographics, professional presentations, um, and, and our fact sheets. And so one of the really interesting insights we learned from this is that for resource strap groups, standalone handouts are wonderful. Um, for those with more resources, they often identified a need to develop their own materials, including their own, you know, adding their own additional messaging or being able to use their own branding and logos. You can imagine some, like having a USDA logo or, or a government logo on things might not resonate with individuals. And so that was something really interesting that we learned. Um, so. During this time, our um, colleagues at Health and Human Services were already working on all of the fact sheets being translated into Spanish. So they were already filling that gap for our more resource strap, group, strap groups. So um, what we thought we would focus on um, was uh, translating all of our figures. Um, and I'll get, I'll get to that um, in, a, in a few minutes. But we also learned about the time and effort it was taking our colleagues to do translation work instead of focusing on reaching communities. So um, we were determined to try to alleviate some of that burden. Um, and they also made us think about the fact that text is a lot easier to translate than graphics. Um, and that graphics are particularly helpful in creating really high quality presentations. Um, we also learned that um, to be more impactful, that to have a dedicated Spanish-speaking page where we housed all these resources um, would, would um, possibly resonate more with Spanish-speaking professionals. So process for translation. Um, it might be different for different organizations. At USDA and HHS, we use dedicated contract mechanisms we also have internal staff available to us for consultation. So for the ready-to-use handouts and fact sheets, we began with direct translation, and both the contractor and internal experts recommend using the Real Academia Española dictionary instead of one particular dialect. And I'll get to that 
a little bit more later. Um, while budget, though, for these did not allow for separate formative research for English and Spanish handouts, as would have been ideal, the contractor did emphasize the importance of adapting the English text when needed to ensure relevance in Spanish instead of um, translating things word for word. So additionally, um, the graphics or the, the pictures and images in those fact sheets were changed to increase relevance and to provide a streamlined look. And then fluent subject matter experts at both USDA and HHS reviewed the materials. And after multiple rounds of review, there was a user testing phase. Um, the draft materials were presented to Spanish-speaking individuals um, identified by a market research firm um, based on our target audience. And then participants identified any unclear language um, and suggested changes. And then the SMEs worked to integrate those into the, um, the handouts, but also to ensure um, relevance across dialects. The final files were then meticulously reviewed by our web teams to ensure that there was consistent translation across all of the different files, that we had 508C compliance, and that the graphics were as professional as our English versions. Our second objective was to translate all 25 of our figures from the DGA into Spanish as standalone downloadable images. So these figures can be used as teaching tools and to help illustrate key points from the guidelines that would be really extremely difficult for people to um, replicate without access to a graphic designer. So by translating these most difficult pieces of the guidelines on, and really cost prohibited sections of them, we're hoping to relieve some of that translation burden um, and allow professionals to develop their own customized resources, such as high quality, high impact presentations. Okay, the translations of the figures um, were done on the USDA side um, in collaboration with HHS though, and we also use a, contra uh, a contract mechanism for direct translation of those. Our rationale behind that approach was to hopefully ensure the intention of the very carefully chosen words in the DGA weren't changed in translation, um, though we recognize the approach might not be perfect which is why we also incorporated that meticulously review step by our subject matter experts, um, in which Fluent experts really reviewed um, all of the figures, including our colleagues at the Caribbean office, um, as well as an FNS internal um, Spanish translation working group. Um, so they reviewed it for potential in, um, issues and also if, if things needed further adaptation. And again, after multiple rounds of review, we ensured that there was 508C compliance and all that good stuff. Okay, insights and challenges that we faced. This is, this is the good slide. So it might be helpful to learn um, a little bit about our challenges. One was use of the different use of terms. Um, like I was saying about the figures, at times we intentionally use very specific words in English, which were subtly changed in direct translation. An example of this is the labels that we use to describe dietary intake data um, for the figures in which the words male and female were translated to men and women, so sex versus gender. Um, and so for instances like this, we had a lot of consultation with our subject matter experts to ensure by, that by changing words from hombres and mujeres to masculino and femenino, that we still maintain the meeting of the What We Eat in America National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data, um, but also it still could be understandable by Spanish-speaking audiences. Um, I mentioned dialects earlier. Since our materials are for professionals at a population level, best practices we've learned is, is to use that resource that we were talking about, that I mentioned earlier, um, the Real Academia Española Dictionary instead of a particular dialect. However, at certain times, it was also recommended to use um, multi multiple words for one, one word, and an example of that was in that customizing the dietary guidelines framework. Um, there's a lot of food examples on there, and so people call things different, different things in different um, uh, locations. And so an example of this is peach. Anyone here? besides you two, because I think you know what I'm going to say. Um, anyone here Spanish speaking? Yeah, what do you call peach? Okay, anyone call it different? Melacaton. So we have Durazno, Melacaton. Anyone else? Melacaton. 
Durasno. Anything else besides the two? Because if so, I need to edit it and add something else. <laughs> so for that one, we have Durasno and Melkaton for that because different areas call it different things. Um, but if you ever see something that you think it, we need another word here because it doesn't have it, um, let us know and we'll try to, we'll try to add it. Um, so both of those recommendations to use the real Academia Española dictionary instead of one particular dialect, but for something like the customizing the framework to also add multiple translations in some places, it really resonated with us because we work at the population level. We have all these conversations about like, oh, we're not meeting certain groups and this and that, but that's why we're out here trying to empower people. Use our materials, they're free, you can adapt them for your audiences, and um, yeah, we're always open to learning You know what we're doing wrong or how to make that adaptation easier, so please, please reach out if you have any suggestions. Another challenge was working through capitalization rules. Um, this was particularly true when comparing the look and feel of the English versions and the Spanish versions. For English headings, almost every word we had was capitalized for some of these, but in Spanish, it was generally recommended just to be the first word. And so when the web team got it, who weren't all Spanish speakers, they were, they, they, the look and feel was different. It didn't have the same you know, look of that bold heading, and they didn't want it to look like a lesser material or something like that. And so they went back um, to ensure that we were capitalizing correctly, number one. Um, and it was recommended to, to stick with what, what was recommended in the translation. But then we worked with our graphic designer to kind of work with white space and maybe bolding a little bit differently, um, font size, things like that. So it, it, it's not like exactly the same as the English language version. Um, layout challenges, so capitalization is a layout challenge um, that we faced and the image adaptation um, can be a layout challenge, but text differences are as well. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but when Julia put up the four guidelines, um, the Spanish language versions are longer, and that is generally the case for that. And so when you're thinking about translating a um, fact sheet that's already established from English to Spanish, um, you can't just plug it in to the, the English version because you probably don't have the same amount of space. Um, and so if you're thinking about timeline and budgeting, you have to get that graphic designer back to help you. And so if you're doing something in a phased approach like we did, and you don't think about that graphic designer's work, um, it could really impact your timeline and your budget. Um, next, while working with a vendor is extremely helpful, having the use of fluent subject matter experts um, who also understand nutrition science and the dietary guidelines is so fantastic and instrumental in developing these materials. That said, we're really happy to alleviate their work, workload with the contract mechanism as well, and having that other resource group to rely on too. So um, as a hidden example, of the burden of translation work, some of our questions that we had for the subject matter experts took time to answer. They don't always just know the answer right away. They have to uh, find it out, especially for some, you know, they might be fluent in Spanish, but they don't work professionally in Spanish all the time. And so they have to find out an answer and it can take a lot of time. Um, and uh, so consider balancing um, workload of the groups that you're work that you're um, asking for help from limit your requests and really um, if you have a contract mechanism available to you use it um, it's so fantastic to have these great internal partnerships but you also need to realize that a lot of times it's not in their work description to do translation work so knowing if it is in that work description or not um, can help you know how much to rely on um, individuals like that Okay, finally, um, translation versus transcreation. For the figures, direct translation with that in-depth subject, subject matter expert review was used to minimize those unintended technical differences, um, but Aracelis will speak um, in a few minutes. There are certain terms that may still cause confusion and that we might still need further community adaptation or even population level adaptation. Um, for the fact sheets, if we had more resources, it would have been ideal to create the English and Spanish versions independently, um, rather than starting with the English versions. 
And, but while transcreation is ideal, there might be a middle ground if budget is limited. Um, in the case of the fact sheets, further adaptations, like I mentioned, were made for phrases that didn't quite have the same meaning, the photos were changed, and they still implemented a user testing phase. Okay, so successes. From this fantastic collaboration, you can now access all of these resources on dietaryguidelines.gov uh, under the current dietary guidelines section. So when you go to the webpage, it's not all blue like this, it's just that ribbon across the top. If you click current dietary guidelines, this big menu opens. It's called a mega menu, if anyone wants to know web, web jargon. Um, in the first two columns uh, are all of the nutrition uh, professional um, uh, materials. And under that second column is, uh, at the end, is where the recursos in Espanol are. So I learned this morning that if you close your eyes and visualize, you will remember this, and you'll remember where it is. So everyone close your eyes right now and picture this mega menu and where to find these guidelines. You don't really have to do it, but if it helps. Okay, um, this uh, section of the website includes um, 10 of the fact sheets and cover covering life stages and specific healthy eating topics on you know, strategies to reduce uh, added sugar, saturated fat, sodium, things like that. All 25 figures from the dietary guidelines, the executive summary, and then also links to our consumer resources on myplate.gov. Um, so while this presentation focuses on the dietary guidelines, um, CNPP's MyPlate team joined us on that roadshow I talked about. They were at almost every single one of our presentations, um, and they engage in many other strategies to identify consumer education needs um, that can fill entire presentations. And they're actually present presenting tomorrow, Joe and our colleague Corey, on Shop Simple with MyPlate. So if you're interested, I encourage you to check out that, that session on healthy eating on a budget. Um, but relevant to this presentation, I'd really like to just plug their fantastic work to meet agency priorities and the White House goals um, for the White House National Strategy, in which MyPlate has um, translated a number of resources on myplate.gov, including um, the, the MyPlate quiz, MyPlate plans, a ton of MyPlate kitchen recipes, tip sheets, and MyPlate graphics. They also have a dedicated web page, Mi Plato en Español, and the QR code will take you there. They're also considering um, future multi-language translations of MyPlate nutrition education materials for use at the community level, including cultural adaptations and language translations um, for fiscal year 2023. So with that, Aracelis will now present additional lessons learned and further considerations that might be useful to you in your own translation projects. Thank you, Megan. Well, let's focus on the lesson learned that we experienced and other considerations that we need to think about after this presentation. Um, thanks to the collaboration that we had with CNPP, we were able to we were able to express how intense is the work that the state agencies, policymakers need to do when the material is not received in a particular language. So now they are aware that we need to do a lot of work without budget because there is no budget for translation when we receive a material from a Let's say from USDA, if it's not connected to the budget of the state agency, it's hard. So this opportunity was very important to express a, how, how good was this partnership. So thanks for that. And the uh, clarify the different terms that we had and the conflict that we have on the linguistic arena. It's important because we, we open the door to do translation to other languages, so. And we would like to, um, oh, we are, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, and on the linguistic arena, the translation is the, the, uh, only the first step to equity, but more adaptations are needed 
to the com to the different communities that we have speaking other languages, and we encourage professionals to um, use the evidence base that the dietary guidelines provide to do these adaptations to those communities. Um, it's important to consider um, the, the needs that that community is expressing to maybe help in the implementation or the design, how it's gonna be implemented. So we recommend you to get involved and bring your, your feedback to us and to CNPP so they can help these communities, but also you can do partnership in your local area to improve the, the materials and the resources. The collaborative relationship with universities and other uh, entities is important also because um, they can do studies, they can do the needs, the assessment of needs, they can do testing on your community and you can create special projects. And that's the example that we do with the Puerto Rico Food and Nutrition Commission. They do special projects and they are the one who call all the partners to work on translation and do the identified what are the needs on the population. One of the lessons learned that we experience is that um, using pictures help to clarify the message because sometimes in, when you are translating uh, materials for a community that is so large as the Spanish speaker, um, we have many ways to call the same food item, so it's hard. And we need a, the, the group of people um, reviewing the materials need to be um, diverse from different countries because uh, we can ex experience that, for example, the banana in Puerto Rico um, is not that when you translate banana to a Spanish language is not translated equally in the different countries. In Puerto Rico, banana it's the fruit is uh, coming from the fruit groups, but then the plantains are coming from the starchy vegetables. In, and in some countries, a banana is a plantain. So those type of conflict that we have in our linguistic and cultural food cultural practices are important to be included. So. If you cannot have the image of the food item, you can just put the different names um, that that food item is known with. Or you can use the Spanish and the English name so people can relate the information. Another aspect that we have in our population, even though the dietary guidelines introduced the um, grains uh, term in 1985, in our population it ha has been so hard to um, explain that gra whole grains are the main ingredients in bread, uh, cereals, and pasta. And one of the aspects that we think could be affecting is that when we translate grains, we literally translate the term to beans, which is, uh, is coming from the legumes group. So it's very conflicting in our mind to understand um, the word grains. So, and, and it's hard to explain. So we recommend that the term deserve to be studied or bring evidence-based, particularly with our population, to understand what happened, that people is not getting the message. So it's important um, to consider that. 
Also, this is another example that we recommend to uh, do further study is that in Puerto Rico we consume um, starchy vegetable like grains. So because it's a high carbohydrate component of our diet. So this plate with starchy vegetables can be in conflict also because the dietary guidelines are um, recommending half of the plate with starchy um, with vegetables and fruits. So people could be confusing the message and this is an example of how we can do adaptations, how we can handle this type of adaptations. Also, the dietary guidelines are intended to be inclusive to regardless your location, the geographic locations. So professionals and communities need to feel engaged and they need to feel that they are included. If Puerto Ricans don't feel that they are included, then it could be a conflict in the communication of the message. So um, the intention is to bring feedback and we need feedback from the professionals that are working with these communities so they can uh, improve that people feel included, that the message is for them. Here is the list of resources that we use for this presentation, and we include two articles about um, adaptations, cultural adaptations that we, you can use as reference. And please be free to reach out with your questions. And there is a, you can be connected through our social uh, media, and also there is a LQR code so you can access the materials that we have available, like nutrition tips, recipes. So, any questions? Thank you. We use granos enteros. We use the term, but um, it's hard for people. And also another aspect is the availability of, of granos enteros. That's another aspect that we need to involve the food industry to have more variety. That's another aspect. But we use granos enteros. Yeah, that's part of when I mentioned the, um, let me put the plate. When I mentioned about the starchy food, the starchy vegetables that we ate, um, measurement is one of the areas that we need to um, research because we have a, a big variety of starchy vegetables and people, when you prepare the, this plate in your home, you have like four different starchy types. And, and it's a lot. When people have their plates, it's a lot of food. So that's an area that we need to study because it also it's hard to tell them how many pieces I'm gonna select or how big should be that piece. So that's our areas that deserve um, for their studies. 
um, just, and please stay up here. Um, we didn't get into what the 2025 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee is doing, but um, they did, they are in the middle of meeting now, and you can follow along on dietaryguidelines.gov. And um, one of the groups that I'm working with is our food pattern modeling work, which is looking at this issue of starchy carbohydrates and the interchangeability of them and po the possibility that in some cultures you might not eat a lot of whole grains, and what does that mean if you have other starchy vegetables? We know there's some exemptions already for in certain programs, I think, to have starchy vegetables in the place of whole grains. Um, so hopefully, um, if you want to follow along with this work, um, they'll pre be presenting um, their protocol on, on how they're going to look at that data sometime this year, and um, it'll be really exciting to see what they find. So follow along with that process, too. Any other questions? Thank you for staying <laughs> too late.